0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Christopher Moore. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Brian Humphrey.
0: And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes
1: with... 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great honor to share the microphone with some amazingly gifted people. And holy shit, Dave, I think I'm going to pee myself. <laughs>
0: I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Now, now, make <laughs> sure you got your depends strapped on tight, my friend. Uh, oh yes. And and uh, let me let me let me let me regale you into the wonders of this week's guest host. Shall I?
1: Please do.
0: Oh, very good. Well, Brian, the Rocky Mountain News described our guest host as the greatest satirist since Jonathan Swift. Now, oh boy. yeah, I'm telling you, that's some pretty impressive ink. And really, that's just a taste of the laurels he's received in his, what, 13 book career? Uh, so far, anyway, that includes tales of, of a zombie apocalypse Christmas, the story of Jesus from the perspective of his best bud, Biff, uh, other tales involving death, Shakespeare, talking fruit bats. <laughs> and clearly there is some literary mojo going on here and we at the roundtable podcast are driven to uncover the foundations of awesomeness uh, uh, the root cause of creative confabulation uh, and let me tell you Bri there's some rich material here so I'm gonna leave it to you and our listeners to make sense of it all uh, I'm just the messenger okay sounds good all right so he grew up in Ohio And for his spiritual underpinnings, he was baptized Methodist, but raised in the first church of the NFL. Uh, His father was very much into football, which pretty much made Sunday services problematic, as well as eliminating any possible observance of the Jewish Sabbath or being a Seventh-day Adventist, just out of the question. His father was a highway patrolman. His mother sold appliances at a big department store, so their schedules were all over the place. Um, Plus, (laughs) he was partially raised by a Catholic family across the street, which just further muddles his religious tapestry. Um, Now, for example, foundational experiences. Um, It's Christmas Eve, Brian. I want to set the scene for you. It's Christmas Eve. Our guest host is five years old, all right? He's wide awake at midnight because Santa's coming, and his dad, the highway patrolman, comes home. Now, his dad sees his, the bright, shining face of his son in the, in the window there. He knows that there's a bike that still needs to be assembled inside the house. How is he going to get the kid to sleep? Dad's solution? Draw your service revolver, fire it into the air, <laughs> <laughs> and announce that he shot Santa off the roof and it's okay to go to bed now. <laughs> Now, this would affect our guest host for years to come, I'm sure, Uh, and in many far-reaching ways. In particular, I found no references to bike riding anywhere in his biographical data. So, there you go. Um, He has been drawn to iconic horror figures of the past, collecting all of the, the Frankenstein and the Mummy and the Dracula toys from the old movies. Um, He'd watch chiller features on Saturdays, went to all the horror movies by himself. In fact, went to see Psycho at the age of six, all by his lonesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he started writing stories for school when he was about 11 or 12, found he really dug it. So he started writing on his own, which led to his first novel, a dozen or so pages of handwritten autobiographical fabulosity about how he becomes the king of the frogs and together they take over the planet. Um, He was also very big into Jules Verne, uh, but, but they were so big and thick that he'd actually have to renew them at the school library about a dozen times in order to get through all of them. Uh, Plus, he also read a lot of Mad Magazine, which became his primary tutor into the ways of satire. Ultimately, he attended Ohio State University, uh, studying anthropology, but that just wasn't cutting it. So he moved to California when he was 19. Uh, Along the way, attended the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. Uh, From a writing perspective, he's pretty much self-taught. Uh, Other than taking a couple of extension courses from Shelly Loenkopf, who teaches the MFA program in professional writing at University of Southern California back in the 80s, he's pretty much taught himself. Now, cut forward to our guest host at the age of 25, selling insurance, hating it. He attends a writer's conference in Santa Barbara and brings some stories that he's written. Turns out people like to read what he writes. So he writes a draft for what would become practical demon keeping. Writes query letters to a ton of agents. And he also has a friend who works in television. He gives her the manuscript just to look at. Well, you know, she gives the book to an agent who likes it, six months later, the film rights are sold to Disney. Now get the order on this. The film rights sell to Disney, then the publishing rights are sold in about 10 countries. Uh, so even before this book hit the shelves, the film rights were sold. And you know how that happens? It's not luck. It's not knowing the right people. It's because you wrote an awesome story. That's how that magic happens. And sometimes, you know, even that isn't enough. His third book, all right, Bloodsucking Fiends, Destined for the big screen, all right. Written in three acts, fall off the log easy in adaptation. Very visual, very funny. No one had ever done a funny vampire movie before. The same, almost <laughs> the month that he sends his book off to Hollywood for for review, two vampire comedies hit the big screen and bomb. Horribly. Suddenly, vampire comedies are poison in Hollywood, and our right, our guest host, took from that the life lesson of expect the worst and be pleasantly surprised, which is good philosophy all around. Uh, at book signings, our guest host encourages everyone to lower their expectations. As he points out, I'm a writer. If I was a people person, they wouldn't lock me in a room by myself to do my job. we are about to put that to the test dear friends please welcome to the big chair at the round table mr christopher moore chris sir thank you so much for for taking the time and and sharing your thoughts on your craft and your process
2: with us we really appreciate it yes Yes. you're very welcome where did you that's a great intro (laughs) (laughs) i mean as you said high you know sort of high-blown but my goodness, that's a lot of information that I'd forgotten. Well, dude, you make it easy. Your website
0: is brilliant. You've got this section. I wish every of every one of our guest hosts had a section of their website called Interviews that had 30 wow. listings of all this wonderful information on you out on the interwebs. It's fabulous. I totally
2: forgot about that. Well, okay. That's, Color surprised. It's all there. It's all there.
0: <laughs> uh, any any errors that should be corrected that no, I get No, actually,
2: yeah, it sounds pretty spot on. I just don't know
0: what we're going to talk about now. Oh, well, there's much <laughs> much to talk about. Um, we've actually yes. we've got some stuff from the Twitter sphere that we need to cover, but let's 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 get started with our 20 minutes with christopher moore i'm eager to dive into this i'm going to set the timer we'll of course ignore it but hey you know we'll just blaze on um and i'm going to lead us off chris um that that comment from the rocky mountain news uh uh the greatest satirist since jonathan swift uh that is high praise well earned of course but i'm curious satirist what is that how do you become a satirist, uh, and and what is it from from a writer's perspective that defines a satirist from a humorist from a spec fictionist and so on and so forth? Just walk us through the process of satire and and how that works for you as an author.
2: Well, I don't think that I don't think that you actually define that. Um, you know, I, there's there's certain aphorisms I, I and I I now forget who said this. I want to say let's just say it was Moliere. Um'm <laughs> sure <why not? laughs> exactly. no to look it up, but they said um uh Americans write humor uh Brits write comedy and and f- the French write satire <laughs> I, I don't know what that means but but in a in a way it's sort of it sort of makes sense but but I don't think that you make a decision whether you're going to be a satirist or unless you're writing something that is making fun of a specific genre or a specific uh social uh so social convention or, or something. I and I I don't do that. So so much like the genre as far as uh, genres as far as you know science fiction western you know literary genres in that respect um, popular fiction genres. I, I don't think you pick you know um, and and people like to make category uh, categories. I mean if someone's going to say I'm that good, I'm happy to be in that. Co- it's like some. <laughs> You know, as the best golfer since Tiger Woods, it's like okay, that I'll take that. And, sure, and, I can live with that. You bet. You no, know, yeah. I, far be it from me to start saying I'm not a satirist if someone says I'm, you know, the best since Jonathan Swift. But I certainly didn't set out to to okay, there's the bar, I've got to leap. Um, but that certainly seems to be
0: where you've landed. I mean, not with all of your work, but you know, looking at Lamb, uh, uh, looking at um, oh God, uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, there there seems to be the satirist some of the satirist in you in terms of just commentary on society and culture
2: i I think so i i it, I guess when i think about um i guess my introduction to satire was was mad magazine and and I think it was more dependent on the source material um than my stuff is um which is not to say that that i don 't do a lot of research when I do a book like Lamb or Fool, which, you know, are based on classic pieces of literature, but um, th- there's a difference, and not everything springs from, you know, I, I think the mantra of, of your show, it sounds like, is tell a good story, and that's mine as well, so, so if I have to diverge from, the, from source material, um, or, or my comedy becomes original and, and character-driven, which it very often does in um, even things that have source material uh it it seems to go out of the bounds of satire and and it's not for me to to pay any uh obeisance to oh it's not satire anymore it's more this is funny, this is a good story, this is what the characters want to do. So, uh, like I said, I'm happy to, t- to take that mantle and actually I bought that guy dinner. Um, uh, <laughs> in,
0: in the spirit of full disclosure, there we go. Yeah, and,
2: and then shortly thereafter, the Rocky Mountain News folded forever. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Brian and I are both from Colorado, so we... we also we, yep, also yeah. my fault, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh you know, so that's, I I, th- I find the same thing when people go, well, are you, do you write science fiction? What do you write? And and I don't really adhere to any genre there either. It's for other people to decide. So when when Mark Graham said that, um, then I was a satirist, but but I didn't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a satirist. And I suppose that that, that definition starts from whether you are, uh, you know, there's like social satire, which is making fun of, of social conventions in, in a timely way, and then there's sort of... Uh, uh, using source material satire, which is how I was introduced to it as a kid, and and the latter I do fairly often, uh, or some of my books, I think all of my books make fun of the conventions of fiction. So sure. uh, uh, someone who is a reader of, of say, H.P. Lovecraft is going to get a special kick out of something like Practical Demon Keeping that sort of plays with those perceptions and that overly colorful, you know, adjective-laden prose of H.P. <laughs> H-
0: which, which is what you said you wanted to do, actually. You wanted to do, for, for horror, what uh, Douglas Adams had done for science fiction with Hitchhiker's exactly. Guide.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's what I set out to do. And, and, and Douglas Adams was sort of, my, uh, sort of my model for that. Okay. Um, and that's why Practical Demon Keeping has that sort of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, how-to title was, was very much inspired by what Douglas Adams did.
1: Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. Your, uh, Chris, your humor, especially in Fool, um, is sometimes shocking in how far it pushes the envelope, but certainly funny as hell. Um, how do, you, do, do you ever have to censor yourself, and how far do you find is too far?
2: Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, that book in particular is so vulgar. And I was really, uh, I, I had a, a national rep for my publisher one time describe, I, I was at a book convention, and she was describing to a bookseller, Lamb, as being a vulgar retelling of of the Gospels. <laughs> and I took her aside and I said, vulgar is not a sales word, you know? Right. <laughs> it's <laughs> or, or body, but not vulgar. That's right, irreverent, right. <laughs> uh, yes. But vulgar is vulgar. Uh, and, and, uh I try not to I used to really say that that the only line that I drew in humor was mean spiritedness um and and yeah. pretty much anything was on the table as long as it wasn't written with you know in a mean spirited way and then the Bush administration happened <laughs> <laughs> oh you know, there are some people who really deserve mean spiritedness and and so i I sort of threw my last uh my last line out, I, the, the main thing is it's got to be funny and, and you will lose a few people with language. There's just some people who completely lose context to the reality and they'll see, oh my goodness, someone said the F word. Um, it doesn't matter that I'm murdering children. You've said the F word. Um, and, and I think we all know, uh, somebody does, I think Louis CK does a, uh, uh, comedy routine about the service person who's waiting for you to say the F word so they can hang up on you. <laughs> yes. Yep. Comcast and Dell and everybody else that, you know, I have to take this person's abuse until they use profanity and then I can hang up on them. Uh, but, think, <laughs> you know, the, the whole point of, of uh, doing a, a book that was sort of written with British vernacular is I thought, I think the language and, and anything based in Shakespeare is all about language. And and British swearing is just funny. <laughs> you know, the yeah. cadence of it is funny. The sort of over the topness of it is funny. And I think I uh, I had read a a writer uh, called Mill Millington who's a Brit, and uh, he he did a, a first a blog. A lot of about forty thousand words of it is available online called uh, "Things My Girlfriends and I Have Argued About," and it was so funny and it was about, you know, it seemed in retrospect about 25% of it was just him calling people tossers and wankers. <laughs> Which is funny, of course. And and so basically um, wanting to write this British comedic character came out of that. So, so that book in particular is pretty almost over the top in, with sort of vulgar language. But, but as far as drawing the line, I, I, I remember in Lamb I had uh two or three people read the uh manuscript, and they came back to me and they said, "Why, well, I really have a problem with Jesus saying the f word <laughs> oh wow and I said, I said Re- yeah and I'm not religious people either. I mean people who get me and under you know and, and were right friends and had read everything that I'd written, and they said, yeah, it's, that throws me out of the story. there's something about that and and we know one of the things that I have as a rule is if you hear something from one person, it might just be, you know, individual taste and you, you really can't give a lot of credence to it if it doesn't resonate. I mean, that's how, you know, you have a good editor is that they say things and you go, Oh yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But if you hear the same thing from two or three people who, you know, they haven't discussed it, then th- you need to look at it. And that was something I heard from two or three people. And so I cut back like all the two times when, the the Joshua character, the Jesus character says the F word. So basically if it if it distracts from the story, if it doesn't work for uh, the majority of the audience as I perceive it, then I'll draw a line there, Brian. But I don't I, I don't do it by saying, oh gosh, everyone will freak out if I use the C word or everyone you know, because the Brits right, use right. like, you know, children's television. Um <laughs> There's a BBC Kids channel, in there and there people are calling each other twats all the time on it.
0: Yeah, Amazing. T- <laughs> well, and, and it sounds like your your philosophy, Chris, is is to just go balls out, put it out there, get the story told as as you see it, as it's coming off of your off of your brain and out of your fingertips, and then let the let the editors, let the beta readers, let the let the the people whose job it is is to review and refine, point out uh, you you may have crossed the line here.
2: Well, I I and and. And it really has to come with some consensus. I mean one of the things I think there's a myth about editors, at least in my experience and i've had i mean for the first seven books, I had a different editor every book and um and I mean they just dropped like flies basically I, um I thought for a while it was me but um <laughs> so so you have to sort of measure their tastes when they, when, when they say something, there's going to be a difference from, from one other to another. Um, but almost never do they insist. If you can defend something on a change, then they, then an editor won't insist that you change it. So, so you, you it has to resonate with, if someone says, this seems a little harsh to me, you, you have to say, okay, you know, or, and what often happens is, well, now I've got 350 pages, who cares? You know, when, when you're, when you've only got 10 or 15 pages of a book, Cutting a paragraph is like, oh Jesus, you know, <laughs> that's like hundred percent of the book. But when you've got three hundred and fifty pages, it's like, okay, I, I, we won't strangle the poodle because I had that. Had an editor one time I was like, <laughs> it's a little harsh, and I'm like, Dude, there's like twenty murders in this book, and then he's like, yeah, but the poodle, the poodle, come on,
1: <laughs> there's something different about animals. I vampire,
2: think. But... where a guy pulls yeah. a, a woman's murdered by a vampire, and and uh, in such a way that her body doesn't disappear. And, and he's also murdered her poodle. And there's a, a, a medical examiner sort of holding the dead poodle by a leash and talking about, you know, and, and I think I described it as if he were going to make a large cup of poodle tea. <laughs> <laughs> my, editor, my editor at the time was like, that's just over the line. That's just too much. And I'm oh like, my God. <laughs> I've killed like 20 people in this book. But a poodle on a string. That's right. Getting ready God, to be made into I'm tea. Good. Yeah
1: that's so funny
2: <laughs> Yeah, I mean generally if you're writing comedy um, in fiction you have to have a sense of what's funny because it's going to be 18 you, you can't workshop your material the way you do you know if you're a comedian or, or, an, or an actor right. you have to you know you'll tell the joke and then 18 months later you get to find out whether it's funny
0: <laughs> Really, trusting your own instincts and the instincts of, of your editor or agent uh, along the way but that's it yeah
2: you know I've got to hear it from more than one person Um, before I'll change something.
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Christopher Moore after this brief promotional break. The great reawakening did not come quietly. Across the country and in every nation, people began to develop terrifying powers, summoning storms, raising the dead, and setting everything they touch ablaze. Overnight, the rules changed. Colonel Alan Bookbinder is an army bureaucrat whose worst war wound is a paper cut. But after he develops magical powers, he is torn from everything he knows and thrown onto the front lines. Drafted into the Supernatural Operations Corps in a new and dangerous world, Bookbinder finds himself in command of Forward Operating Base Frontier, cut off surrounded by monsters and on the brink of being overrun. Now, he must find the will to lead the people of FOB Frontier out of hell. Even if the one hope of salvation lies in teaming up with the man whose own magical powers put the base in such grave danger in the first place. Oscar Britton, public enemy number one. From Ace Publishing comes Shadow Ops, Fortress Frontier. The second book in the Shadow Ops trilogy, from award-winning military fantasy author, Mike Cole. Look for it in paperback or ebook in January, 2013. On the frontier, even magic won't save you. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Christopher Moore.
1: Now, you know, you're talking about a sense, knowing or having a sense of what's funny, developing that sense. Um, you've held just about every job known to man and woman at some point in your life. And many of your characters share those experiences. Um, And I think sometimes the romanticized image that we get of writers is that they slave away deep in a dark room, generating all of their ideas from the ether. But you obviously live life. And that's something that, that has always drawn me to your books. Um, How important is it for a writer? Do you think to unplug and get outside and what should they do once they're out there?
2: Um, you know, I was. It's funny. I was just talking about that with my my girlfriend this morning. My wife like girlfriend of you know seventeen years now. Uh, w- you know, wife like wife like girlfriend. <laughs> wife like girlfriend. Let me, write that, yeah. let me write
0: that. one down. That one's good. My wife like. Yeah, long story. Carry <laughs> on. <laughs> on.
2: Um, but uh, you know, I I before I I wrote Practical Demon Keeping, um, I was working as a night auditor in a hotel. And, um, you know, and you work from like 11 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning, and it's, it's truly a graveyard shift. You're there by yourself on a desk, and you have realistically about three hours work to do, and then about five hours of sitting under unhealthy fluorescent lights. And, and I think in our sort of romanticized world, it's like, that's the perfect job for a writer. That's the worst job <laughs> You know, you have no social contact. You lose the social skills. I became clinically depressed and, and an alcoholic. I was probably an alcoholic before going into it, but you know, just saying worse. Um, and and you know, when I was when I actually was writing my first book, and which took me quite a while, I was I was thirty before I I really started it. I was waiting tables, which is a much more dynamic in people's faces, you know, interacting, you know, the whole time you're there, moving the whole time, much more healthy for for writing for me. So so um, I think you have to bring that into it. And he, and now where I do spend a lot of my time sitting in a room by myself making clicky noises, um, <laughs> I have to take it in, I, and I think Goethe talked about this um, as well, is you have to go out into the world, have the experiences, and then come back and and process them and, and write and and so you the balance is in the day-to-day basis like it was when i was waiting tables but i definitely have to get out of the house get out into the world interact with people there's a lot more sort of observing than interacting now because i'm interacting as a writer and and i, I think that's boring in fiction um to have a writer as a character so uh so because what i do is basically to look at it from the outside is pretty boring so, so I like to learn about, you know, different occupations and people doing different things that seem interesting. But well, you uh, have
0: you have a very vital dialogue with your fans. The, the relationship that you cultivate with your fans uh, uh, borders on on codependent. Uh, <laughs> in, so, in some ways, especially, and, and let me just call up a couple of questions in related in relation to this that we got from the Twitter sphere. Uh, uh, Jay of many hats and Adrian Camp are both keen on seeing some characters re- coming back. Uh, Jay of many hats asks, "Are we ever going to see any more of Minty Fresh, uh, the Death Merchant from a Dirty Job?" And Adrian Camp wants to know, or or makes the observation that uh, there's a recurring character of the Emperor. Uh, and have you ever considered having him be the main character of a story?
2: Um, both of those guys will be in the book. I, I will start next. I, I just <laughs> <laughs> see there it no, is. That see, I, I, I'm going to do a sequel to a dirty job, and both of those guys Yay. are in, um, a dirty job. Uh, Minty Fresh is just—he's he's physically sort of a, an interesting character. I um, he's like seven feet tall, and he's, he's this black guy who's into jazz and and sort of uh, that. You know, shadow and 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 very stoic and s- sort of uh below the surface dangerous. you know, I'd like to think that, that Elmore Leonard would like a character like like <laughs> um, and he you know, he has this whole supernatural thing. Um, I don't know how he's going to figure, but I'm sure he'll be in the in the new book. and the emperor is based on Joshua Norton, emperor Norton, who was a real historical figure. He was a sure, emperor of
0: the United States.
2: Yeah, he was yeah, he declared himself in the 1860s after he came to San Francisco, he lost he saw all the Chinese workers from the railroad and in Chinatown and so forth and he, and he thought I'm going to corner the market on rice futures and he lost a fortune. He's an Englishman and he went mad and he declared himself emperor of San Francisco and um Alta California and Mexico and um and so he the interesting thing about it was that there's been a, a lot of nuthouse napoleons but the city of San Francisco went oh okay um <laughs> okay sure yeah you know the the uh, paper would print his proclamations and and the tailors would make him you know these big grand coats with epaulets and and uniforms and so forth and there was a there was one point currency um that was printed with his picture on it but only he could use it and and tours and hoteliers would, uh, would accept his currency for him, and, and wow. uh, when he died, the, the St. Francis Yacht Club uh, kind of threw a funeral for him, and there was 30,000 people there. So,
1: so uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I
2: liked the idea of, of sort of this, this homeless guy that people revered in their own way and uh and so I brought him into the modern world in Bloodsucking Fiends and he's been in all four of my uh San Francisco based books. So he'll definitely be back, but as far as I don't know because he's based on a historical figure if um uh, if I would want to to do a book with him as the main character. Um also, the research. I don't want to go be a homeless guy.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be where the skills of observation and sympathy, not empathy, uh, come into play, and just observe and watch and see rather yeah, than actually do. I,
2: I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. I. I think if I. I don't know. I, he's sort. He's sort of a grandiose guy, and and uh, and very sweet. I mean, the the thing about him being the emperor of San Francisco is he's really. Worried about the people of San Francisco, he sort of doesn't just—he's not just into the pomp and circumstance of being the emperor of San Francisco. He's really worried about his people, and uh, and you know that might be interesting. But I, I like him more as a as a ancillary character rather than the main uh, character. You know, yeah, to the point of view that you can always go to mo- all my uh, San Francisco books are multiple point of view books, and so you can always sort of see things from a street level. Um, with the emperor, and also a big picture way. Very yeah.
0: cool. Well, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Now, it awesome. sounds like we're we we I'm, I'm, we're already going over time, and just fuck it, we're doing it. Uh, we're going to go That's over right. time just a little bit. Um, uh, interestingly, Sherry Priest, we had her on recently, and she is a big advocate of a location as a character in the story. And it sounds like you have that same... Uh, 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 philosophy or, or strategy, at least in terms of, of San Francisco. Is, is that the case? Do you feel like the location is an actual character that you can uh, work with and evolve?
2: I, yeah, I think it's a huge thing. Um, I, I mean, it feeds what I do big time. And um, I, I almost always go to places that I'm writing about. I, I Let's say I, I always go to places I'm writing about. Um, I just obviously can't always go in, you know, time. But, you know, I I sort of toured um, English and French medieval cities before I wrote Fool, even though Fool is, you know, like Shakespeare's work, it's set in a sort of undetermined time. um, That's, you know, it's sort of vaguely late medieval time. And and I went to Israel, obviously not in first century, but I I (laughs) spent in Israel. (laughs) You know, getting you know, and I I came out of it going, well, this is a very you know beige country, um, <laughs> a limited color palette
0: there in in the Middle well, East. I mean, yeah. I, I,
2: it's a scene. I, I I'm sorry. I know we're going over. I'll try and see. But there's a scene in it where um and it's taken from the Gospels where Joshua heals two blind men in Jericho, and and they he gives them back their sight and and they're sort of like, eh. <laughs> It's just. I just thought there would be more color. It's <laughs> so goes, beige. What color is that? He goes, well, that's brown. And you go, well, how about that? And he goes, well, that would be brown as well. And that was my, you know, all of his, uh, Judea, what was Judea, which is where this happens, is just it's where the Dead Sea is. There's just not a non-brown thing anywhere. <laughs> that's the reason why it's called the Dead Sea, yo. It, if I hadn't right. gone there, that scene wouldn't have existed. So, yeah, setting can be very important, even, even if it's just in reference <laughs>
1: historically. That's awesome. Excellent.
0: One Excellent. one last quick question. We got to wrap up. And this one's from well, Levi. I,
1: I have to throw one in after this, but it's a very fast one. So OK. All
0: right. This, this is this is actually from Levi Groovy. And it's, it's kind of intriguing. Um, And I didn't mention in the intros, but but Chris, pretty much all of your stuff, all of your work that's out there has already been optioned for film or television. Uh, uh, and there's there's a running joke that you have perpetuated that, you know, none of it is in any danger of actually happening. Um, but, but Levi Groovy wants to know, well, why don't you only make one movie of your books, uh, and see if the result is good? That's, that's the question on the table,
2: sir. I think that that presupposes that it's my choice. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. not a filmmaker. I don't want to make movies. I, I don't, I don't have any interest in it. I Um, I mean, I, it would be great if someone else made a film and I, and I'm not closed to the idea of working on one, although I'm not. I'm usually working on a book, and I'm like, "Yeah, you guys go do whatever you're going to do." But it's not really up to the author, unless unless you really want to be a filmmaker, which um, you don't. Which it's it's just not. Yeah. In my I don't want to do it. It hasn't been in my There was a point I think where you know before I had turned forty, where I thought, "God, ah, it'd be kind of cool to direct a film," and yeah. um, and blood sucking fiends, I thought, "Okay, I'll write and direct that if someone asks me to." But you know, I. have I've since been disabused of that delusion.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Cool, cool. Okay, so I have to throw this in because I promised my wife I would, and this question comes from her, but I completely agree with the sentiment. Why are you so fucking awesome? <laughs>
2: <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I, uh,
1: Nothing like being blindsided with that kind of it's question.
2: J- well... Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just get up every, and that's every an day and, and, and reach for awesomeness. I think. Well, and, and, and yeah. let, let's let's go ahead
0: and actually turn that around because that's an excellent question, Brian. But let me ask you this, Chris: um, What is your awesomeness? What what is your superpower as an author? If, if somebody sat down and said, Chris, what are you awesome at when it comes to writing? What is your truest, greatest strength of as a, as an author?
2: I can write funny stuff. Bam, there and, we go. Yeah, there it is. I like there it is. Stuff. I'm not. I'm not making a living because I write elegant sentences or or you know great pathos. Um, I'm making a living because I can write funny novels and almost nobody else can, and <laughs> and that is complete. It's completely a a function of being lucky. Um, you know, it's it's like asking, you know, somebody why? How can you run that? You know. 9.3 second 100 meter dash and it's like i just happened to you know things lined up genetics and and training lined up and i can run that fast well that's sort of how i am with with what i do better than i do anything else which is stuff i don't, I don't,
0: oh, I, I don't you're,
1: you're you're getting into an area where dave's philosophy is going to contradict with yeah that, I, yeah no i don't. i i am totally with you <laughs>
0: Luck, luck for sure. <laughs> Luck only takes you so far, dude. And you write a good story, and not just a funny story, but a story that actually touches people and makes people think. That ain't luck, yeah, man. Yeah. That's mojo. That's, That's badassery.
2: Well, I, I, think, I think the thing that you have to, you know, when I, the, sorry, I know we're going over, but, <laughs> but when, I, when I sold that first book, I was waiting tables, and I got the call. Disney bought my first book for a lot of money, and I was, and I literally got the call at work. Before it even hit um, the shelves, dude. Yeah. And I mean, I had heard nothing. And all of a sudden, I get this call, and, and they offered me $400,000. <laughs> That's
1: awesome. And
2: I, and I go, I can't talk. I, I have garlic <laughs> bread to go out on table five. Um, it, it literally happened. I hung up on, on the agent, you know, because I had, you know, I was worried about my tip. And, um, <laughs> But after that happened, and there was a lot of press in the local area, people kept saying, "Well, it's just like winning the lotto. and it's just like winning the lotto. And I said, "Well, yeah, it, if you had to spend 30 years learning how to buy a lotto ticket." Yes, thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. That's yeah. what I mean, Dave, when I said when I say it's luck. And and many of the writers I know that are very successful, um, uh, Lemony Snicket lives here in San Francisco, and we, and we've shared a couple of dinners, and and he. He says the same thing, you know, he's been fabulously successful, but it doesn't mean that he's not skilled, but it yeah. means you know, there are skilled people, there are writers as as good as I am or better that aren't doing as well as I am and and there are writers that are worse than I am that are doing much better. Um so, so but to in order to participate in the luck you have to have the training and the skill i mean michael jackson may have had the genetics to be i mean not michael jackson michael jordan may have had the genetics to be a great basketball player but he also practiced right you know right so learn right. how to play basketball okay. and and i think that that's that's how you have to look at the luck aspect of it is in order to even participate in the luck you have to develop the chops i see what you're saying and and you're right you're absolutely right i just that that
0: I have a knee jerk reaction to, to, to that sort of, I mean, luck is almost, it's almost dismissive. It's almost, you know, Hey, I, I, I had nothing to do with it. It was lucky. And, and you're not saying that at all. You're just saying that.
2: No, I'm saying, I'm, I think that my ability to write funny stuff is, is the fact that I grew up in a house that, you know, my dad was a cop and he had this macabre sense of humor that clearly, <laughs> because they do, you know, emergency workers do, they have, in order to, if you're, if a bad day at work for you is a four year old dies in your arms on the on the highway, you've got to develop some sort of of way to deal with that. And a lot of cops and and ER nurses develop this sort of uh, macabre sense of humor just to get through it. And Definitely. and I grew up with that. That was dinner table conversation was just this guy that had this goofy sense of humor, and then you know adding into it the experience of being an only child. And so I read way more mag- magazines than I should and way more jewels for him than I should. So so when I say, look, it's just the circumstances that allowed me to, to write funny stuff are not things that I can teach somebody. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, leading back to what's your greatest asset, that's it, is that I can write funny stuff. The other stuff, you know, whether the stories work together and they're suspenseful and the characters are good, that's learned. Um, so I, I'm not discounting that you can learn or that you need to learn and work at it. But but my particular, if you will, gift was uh, the luck of my circumstances, which in some aspects, I mean, if I were a, an attorney, I would be screwed, you know. <laughs> You'd be funny, but you would be screwed.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'd say unfortunate things to a judge, and then it would, <laughs> that would not be good. So anyway, yeah. I'll let you, I'll let you wrap. But that's that's you know not awesome. to just learning and. and skill and 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 practice and so forth but to say in my particular circumstances because i don't know if i knew how to teach you to be funny i would be teaching it sure. um right i just don't right. know how to do it I, I don't know how i learned it so no there.
0: that that's perfect that's awesome yep. and and we we are we're way over time and i'm glad we did it because there's yes there's some important stuff in there uh uh so so Chris Moore, thank you, sir, so very much uh, uh, for taking us from 20 minutes with to 30 minutes with. Uh, I could not ask for a better opportunity to do so and really appreciate you taking the time to, to to share with us so generously. We appreciate it, man. Absolutely. You're very welcome, and you're welcome to just edit. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, we're, no, It all stays in. It all stays in. Brian, what, what are you taking from this, man? There's so much gold lying on the table here as I'm sitting here. I'm going, what am I taking from this? What, what do you got?
1: I you know, I, I'm I'm totally starstruck at the moment. And so everything, every little bit of it. But I, I you know, I, I I do think that that the idea that you have to kind of get out and experience things, but then bring that back and process it is um is really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and that that, that essence of life and that engagement is is important on many levels, not just professionally, yep. but also creatively, sure. For for me, it's a toss up. Wife like girlfriend, really just kind of stuck <laughs> and lodged. In my brain, that's going into a story at some point somewhere. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, but but that that whole discussion at the end of of luck versus skill and and the 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 interaction between all of those that and maybe that might not be for all of our listeners, but certainly for me, that's a button that I really need to like sure. just back away from and just let it go because it really is a combination of both, and I don't need to be all getting up in people's business because they're saying it ain't luck man it's skill it's skills it's not it's a little bit of everything it's life is that's what right it is. that's right so all yes. right very cool um, Sweet. Dear, yeah, no kidding. Dear friends, thank you so much for hitting that play button and joining us for this 30 minutes with Christopher Moore, badassery. Um, now, I know you're sitting there going, wow, what's what's next? How can we top this? Well, we're gonna. Co- you have got to come back in a few days for the workshop episode. The workshop episode is going to be epic. It's going to be amazing. We're going to do stuff we've never done before. And that's all I'm going to say about it. That's all I'm going to say about it. And it's still a few days away. So here's a few suggestions on how you can fritter away your time between now and then. Uh, one, go out to iTunes and give us an awesome review. Or just give us a review. It doesn't have to be awesome. That seems to be the trend, and we are so grateful for that. Uh, but, but, but let the world know we're out there because I named this podcast a really dull, stupid name, and it never comes <laughs> up in the iTunes feed unless we have a lot of people saying, no, really, this is good stuff. So help us out there. Uh, uh, drop us a line uh, out on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash roundtable podcast we're out on twitter at writers podcast um, you can drop us a line at the table at round table podcast i know you saw that coming um, and and just generally spread it spread the word let the world know what's going on brian what do you think what should they be doing over the next couple of days uh, aside from from spreading the goodness of the
1: roundtable? i think the best thing that they can do is
0: go right bam i could not possibly agree more Friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for awesome, look for amazing stuff, and and I promise you, you'll find it. It's out there. It's waiting for you. Uh, we will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye, bye bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Round Table Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like and you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of BroTown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyer, Billy Nobel and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host or learn more about The Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com.
1: Thanks for listening.